Well, hello, Heritage family. Hey, welcome to this first week of Relatable. My name's Jeremiah. I get to be one of our teaching pastors here. I want to welcome all of you who are joining us online, our family in Bettendorf, brothers at Kiwani, and everyone right here in Rock Island as we press into this new message series called Relatable. And it's looking at our relationships through the lens of one of the teachings of Jesus called the Beatitudes. Beatitude is really just a big word that means blessing, lots and lots of blessings. And so I wonder what it would look like in our lives for all of our relationships to be marked primarily by the blessings of God. Can you imagine what it would look like for those relationships closest into you to be marked by God's blessing, to be fulfilling and engaging in a way that God receives glory and where you know he is at work in them. It's, uh, it's something that I'm excited about us exploring and discovering more about together over the course of the next several weeks. As I said, my name's Jeremiah, and uh, I get to be one of our teaching pastors. I loved getting to celebrate Easter with our Heritage family last week, and getting to celebrate it with my, my own little family as well. Here's a picture of us that was taken in one of our picture-taking stations uh, around the network here, and uh, I, I love the people People in this picture. I love who they are to me. I love the stories that God is continuing to write in and through each of them. And, and I really want to share a couple of those with us today. And so the, the first one I want, to, I want to highlight has to do with my beautiful bride, Sarah, who, uh, who is just an amazing woman, a passionate pursuer of Jesus. If you get to know her and I together, very quickly you decide you want to hang out with us more, not because of me, but because you get to hang out with her. She's the better part of this package deal. I'm so, so thankful for her. But before we were married, of course, we were engaged. And before we were uh, engaged, we were boyfriend and girlfriend. And before that even, we were really good friends. In fact, we met in college and we didn't start dating until after we graduated from school together. And our whole dating life was really long distance. I was living in northern Maine at the time, and she was living uh, in Canada. We were about nine hours of drive time apart. And one of the things that you need to understand about long distance in relationships is that it's an accelerant, all right? Distance is an accelerant. It causes you to move toward dysfunction or health a lot faster. And we experienced both of those things quickly in our dynamic, okay? I remember, I remember one time, uh, you know, we were, because we were long distance, we were, we were talking about every day over the phone, and I remember one phone conversation where, where Sarah was telling me, you know, I just don't know if, if this is working. I've been thinking uh, for about a month that this, this may not be working super well. About a month, right? Like, I was like we, we, talk like, we talk like every day. At, at any point during the last 30, we could have had a conversation about, about how this would work. And so we learned early on that we were going to have to identify how we each communicate and, and what our rhythm is in that way. And, uh, you know, we, we tried to make things better. We, we continued on past that moment. And eventually things got to the point where it was time, if you've been in a, in a committed relationship, you understand this, it was time for her to meet my family. That's a huge step. It's a huge step in any dynamic. But, but I have, you just, you need to understand a couple things. Well, really one thing about my extended family, okay? It's, it's weird. 
It's weird. There's just not a nicer way to say it. it is weird. You know, how many of you have that one weird uncle in your family? All right. Get him up. Yeah, get your hands up. In Bettendorf, get in on this too. We all have that one weird uncle, that one weird relative, all right? We all have that one weird uncle, except I have six of them. And that's not, no word of a lie. Like, there are six of them. And so I remember as Sarah's getting ready to, to meet and interact with my family, she's going to fly from Canada to Arizona. It's a big deal. I call my grandma up. And I was like, Grandma, can you please tell your kids to be normal for a little bit? Like, just, just while we're there, can we kind of just move toward normalcy a little bit? Because I don't want to mess this up. And so, you know, we're, we're getting the trip ready. We're going to be there. Uh, uh, so we've got Sarah's room all, all set at my mom's house. And, and she calls me a couple days beforehand. And she just says this. She says, you understand, right? This is a make it or break it trip for us. <laughs> like she's coming to see my weird family and it's a make it or break it I don't know what to do and so you know she flies in we end up we have, an, we have a great couple of days together actually we go and experience uh, the desert museum in Tucson and, and we even go to old Tucson studios where they filmed these uh, old westerns and somewhere out there is a picture of me dressed as a can-can girl uh, from old Tucson studios I'm sure if you pay Sarah enough money she might find it for you but uh, we just had this really great couple of days a fantastic experience but then out of the blue one evening uh, she pulls me aside and she says you know what we said this was a make it or break it trip. It's a, it's a break it trip. It's not happening. I was crushed. And I didn't know what to do. But, but there were a couple of other factors that made this even more difficult. One was that we hadn't met my family yet. I mean, she had interacted with my mom. And so my mom really kindly, lovingly starts making some phone calls and says, hey, just some forewarning. When you meet Sarah, it's as Jeremiah's friend, not his girlfriend. And, you know, you just got to kind of be sensitive to that, which is great of her to do. And, uh, and the other thing that made it really weird was um, she and I had that conversation about four days before she was due to fly back home to, to Canada. So she's 2,500 miles away from home, a Canadian lost in the desert, about to interact with my weird family. And things just kind of go from bad to worse. It gets tense. It's difficult. And we have, uh, thankfully, because of that, we have some time to just kind of walk through some of our challenges there. And, uh, and I, I'm convinced that it was in that time frame where Sarah really actually began to fall in love with me. In fact, there's one sleepless night for her where she does some conversation with God, and then she and I go have a talk afterwards, and, and it ended up being just a few months after that that we were engaged, and a few months after that that we were married, and God ended up uh, continuing to build a beautiful marriage and a beautiful family for us. And the reason I, well, let me, I, I, I want you to know too, my, my weird uncles were still weird, but they reined it in a little bit during the rest of that visit, okay? And, uh, and that helped. So uh, I'm still convinced that she fell in love with me in spite of some of my family, not because of, but I just want you to know, it, it is one of those things, the reason I'm sharing that with us is because I think we all understand that relationships are hard. Relationships are hard. 
We can do what we think are all the right things, and they're still hard. And at the end of the day, it feels like there's some sort of X factor in our relationships that moves them towards something that's good and healthy or not, towards something that's joyful or stressful. It's, it's the, the truth for us. In each of our lives, our most stressful elements are probably related to relationships that we have. And our most joyous places are probably related to healthy relationships that we have. We understand that relationships are hard. And there seems to be this kind of nebulous thing about what it looks like to make the relationships around us, whether they're romantic or they're, they have to be with our coworkers or our friends or our siblings or extended family. We want what's healthy, we want what's right, we want what's good, but it's so hard to figure that out. And relationships, man, they're the, they're the threads of life all around us. We're connected to people in every sphere of life. That's why as heritage, when we boil down who we are and, and why we exist, we say it this way. It's in your note guide if you're following along. It's this, is that heritage exists to connect people to God, and we do that in spaces like these as we gather together in worship and here in teaching as we live sent together and and demonstrate the reality of who God is in our community and in our world around us we exist to connect people to God to each other and and that's in small group environments and mentoring relationships and friendships and in just genuine deep relationship together and to their purpose everything that we do all of the time and talent and energy and treasure that we expend is in pursuit of these kinds of things. And you see, hopefully, that there's relationship at the core of them. Because this is something that we experience somewhat individually, but it's really corporately that we live into this. It's really corporately that we understand we have a relationship with God, that he has a divine purpose for us. He wants us to know and experience. And we really live into that in these circles of community together. So if we could boil down every part of who we are, we, we say it this way. We are not the first ones, though, who have struggled with what it looks like to live into healthy relationship and to experience all that God has for us in those spaces. And we're also not the first ones to kind of boil down our, our ministry focus into a succinct, nice little statement. In fact, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 4 and 5 today if you want to turn or click there. Uh, and all the scriptures, of course, are in your note guide, and they're going to be on the screen here with me as well. But as Jesus is beginning his public ministry, the writer, a man named Matthew, who named the book after himself, because, you know, creative juices apparently were done, were done flowing for the day, so you just name it after yourself, right? So Matthew, who wrote the book of Matthew, he shares a lot about what's going on in Jesus' life. And in chapter 4, Jesus begins his kind of earthly ministry in earnest. He begins to live out who he is and who God is calling him to be. And Jesus kind of truncates his ministry purpose. He boils down his focus and teaching in ministry to a single statement, or Matthew does for Jesus, I should say. And this is how he describes it to us. It's in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. It says, from that time on, from the beginning of Jesus' public ministry on, Jesus began to preach. Here's the statement. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent is a word that means just turn, to turn toward something completely different. It's a change, a 180 in the way that we think and the way that we live. So Jesus is saying, hey, start thinking and living 
completely differently. Why? Because the kingdom not of Caesar, the kingdom not that we build for ourselves, the kingdom not of human government, the kingdom not of everything that you understand about life in this physical world, this kingdom of heaven is something completely different. The kingdom of heaven that Jesus is proclaiming in these moments is something so different that it requires a different way of thinking and a different way of living to even encounter it. So he begins, his whole, his whole ministry is kind of boiled down to this idea of you have to live and think differently because the kingdom I'm bringing is so, so different. And as Jesus continues to interact in life and ministry, we begin to see more and more of what he means by this. This is how the writer Matthew begins the discussion of what Jesus does on the earth as he lives out his divine purpose. His purpose as the sent, promised, rescuing one who is setting everything right. Everything that we know is wrong, he is setting it right. And somehow it's connected to this idea of a different kind of kingdom that requires a new kind of living and a new kind of thinking. So Matthew continues out of that. There's, there's uh, this moment where Jesus begins to call some people to himself, his first followers who he calls disciples. And then the scripture writer Matthew says this is what happens next. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria. Of course it did, because he's healing all kinds of diseases and sicknesses, right? So news about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those who were suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. So here's what's happening. Jesus has said, hey, there's a whole new kind of kingdom that's coming. It's right here. It's, it's kind of dawning on the earth. And then he begins to do this ministry among people where he's physically touching and healing them. And what we need to understand is that these acts of Jesus aren't separate from his proclamation about who he is or what kingdom is. It's actually the kingdom being made real in action around him as he touches these people. And crowds are growing and gathering. Of course they are. Long before, you know, anybody's Snapchatting about what Jesus is doing, word is just spreading quickly because he's not only teaching, but there's something different. There's something at play here where person after person after person after person after person is finding wholeness and healing and restoration. Person after person after person. The crowd grows and grows and grows, and Jesus is active in ministering there. Other, other healers of the day, well, they could, they could maybe touch a few people, but not the crowds in this way. There's something different about Jesus. And so the crowds gather, and they grow, and they come around, and he interacts with them. But there's something that we need to, to really understand here. This, there's, a, there's a central truth to how we interact with God, and even how we read that passage of Scripture. 
That if we don't get this right, if, if we miss this truth, we end up on a trajectory towards something where we start finding ourselves offended with God, where we try to hold God uh, accountable or to a promise that he never made if we do not get this truth. So whether you are new to the whole Jesus thing, you're trying it out, you're trying to figure out who God is and if, if the church and if Jesus are for you, I'm so glad you're here. This truth that we are about to talk about is essential essential, vital for you in your journey. If you've been around for a long time, if you've been following Jesus for years and years and years, the truth that we're about to talk about, you've encountered before, but it is absolutely vital that you internalize this and live it out. And if you're somewhere in between, the truth that we're about to talk about is absolutely vital. It's essential. So here it is. This is what we need to understand about what Jesus is doing here. It's that Jesus did not come to make things better, but to make everything new. Jesus did not come to make things better, but to make everything new. Now hear me, Jesus absolutely cares about the broken and challenging spaces in your life and in my life. He desires for you to know healing and restoration. But the difference between better and new is vast. Better is incremental. Better is temporary. Better is something that you and I can work hard enough for. New, new is completely different. New is something eternal. New is something that is, that is bound by the fabric of who Jesus is as he interacts with us in our relationships. New is what the spirit of the risen Jesus offers us. Jesus, yes, he loves, he cares. He desperately wants you to know and experience life and life to the full. In fact, it's part of why he said he came. But so many of us are settling for better or striving for better or pursuing better when Jesus is calling us to experience something altogether new. If we don't get this truth, if we don't live this out, it changes, it can change everything for us for the worse. If we can live it out, it changes everything for us for the better. If we understand that did, Jesus didn't just come to make things better, but to make them new. It's essential, essential, essential for us. In fact, Jesus actually said as much in his conversation. At one point later in Matthew, he says, don't think that I just came to bring peace. He said, I didn't come to bring, bring peace, but division, not just peace, but a sword. There's a sense that Jesus is doing something that is new. And he actually says it, uh, like literally, he says that he is making all things new in the book of Revelation. When we read this, where it's Jesus saying, the one sitting on the throne saying, look, I am making everything new. We have to understand this, church. We have to understand that there are spaces and places in our lives where we are so actively pursuing better, 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 better relationships, better careers, better homes, better, better houses, better interactions. We are trying in our own strength to make things better, and it is killing us. And the more we pursue better, 
And the more we're disappointed that better takes longer than we think it should or better never comes, the more likely we are to find ourselves deeply offended with God because we've become convinced that he wants everything to be better. When all along the way he's telling us, no, no, don't you see? I love you too much to just make things better. I want to make them new. We have to get this. It changes everything for us. Better is seen, yes, in the touch of Jesus. But, but what I want you to picture here is as Jesus is interacting with these crowds, we know from other stories that there were people in the crowd who had expended every cent they had in better medical care. They had spent everything they had to try to get better using the, the science and physicians of the day. They'd gone broke, bankrupt. We know that that's the case because there are other stories where Jesus interacts with people who had done that who for years had been seeking physician help. We know that there were people who for years and years and years and years had been oppressed by demons, that for years and years and years had been in paralyzing pain, for years and years and years had only known a beggar's life because they couldn't walk to earn a living. And Jesus touches them. But in that touch, I need you to understand it isn't just a better space. That the moment Jesus touches them, because remember, he's touching them not just to make a point. He's touching them because the whole heart of his message is that there is a new kingdom that requires a new way of thinking and living that is dawning on the earth. As Jesus touches them, all of that journey, all of that pain, all of that cost suddenly has new purpose. Jesus redeems it because he uses that painful, costly journey as a proclamation that a new kingdom is here and that new hope has come. You see, when Jesus touches us, it's not to make things better. Oh, that's so small. It's to make things new. And so here's where the story continues, all right? In the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, it says, So now when Jesus saw the crowds, all these people who had gathered, he went up on a mountainside and he sat down. In the ancient world, teachers sat to teach. So everybody knows that he's about to start speaking. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. And the, and the them there is the disciples and the crowds. And he said, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, I want you to picture what's happening here. Person after person after person has been touched by Jesus. The reality of his kingdom is being made real. And so he says, hey, blessed are the poor in spirit because the kingdom of heaven, this whole thing that my whole ministry is about, is theirs if they're poor in spirit. The crowds are gathering as more and more people are healed. And here we are, Jesus sits down, and you can almost hear it. You can almost hear it. Picture it with me. Crowds of people outside, waiting to be touched, waiting to see what happens, and all of a sudden the great teacher sits. And you hear somebody on one end go, shh, 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 shh. And over here somebody says, shh, shh, he's going to talk. He's going to say something. Get ready. I mean, what do you say? What is he going to say? After he has done this incredible thing, all of these amazing miracles, what amazing gem of deep truth is he going to say? 
And he takes a breath and he says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Great blessings on those who are poor in spirit because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, I don't mean to tell Jesus how to do his job, but I don't know that I would start there. Right? When you have all of these crowds, all of these people hanging on every word, ready to hear what earth-shattering, life-changing truth. And he says, hey, blessings on those who are poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's pretty good stuff. What's going on here? But again, understand the context of, as, of what's going on as Jesus is speaking. You see, Jesus had just interacted with all these crowds, remember, for years and years and years and years and years. They had been desperately seeking better. For years and years and years and years, some of them had spent everything they had in pursuit of health and getting better and hope. And Jesus, it's like he's using all of that interaction just before as a phenomenal sermon illustration. And he's telling these people, listen, listen, As desperate as you were, as desperate as you were for me to touch your body, as desperate as you were for me to offer freedom, that's how desperate your soul needs to be for the things of God. And when your soul is that desperate, then, then, oh, then you encounter my kingdom in a way you've never imagined. You see, the poor in spirit idea there, that phrase can be understood as though Jesus is saying, blessings on those who are absolutely soul deep, desperate for God. Because when you're there, you encounter the kingdom of heaven. In fact, I I would say it this way, that desperation for God leads us to fully embrace his kingdom. That it's desperation for God that leads us to fully embrace his kingdom. You see, I believe that's because for many of us, this idea of being desperate for God stands in stark contrast to what it is we can do on our own. Being desperate for God removes the me factor in this. And it positions me to experience him and him alone. There's something about this new kind of kingdom that requires a new kind of thinking and a new kind of living that moves us to a new kind of desperation. Jesus keeps this theme up throughout his Sermon on the Mount. In fact, Jesus, in this message, this this sermon that he's giving to people, it takes up three chapters in our Bible, and there's every indication that the message was actually much longer than that. And throughout his conversation, there's this theme of what it looks like for you and me to meaningful connect with God and each other and his purpose for us. And so as Jesus is speaking, there's an indicator here that everything begins, everything begins from this place of desperation. Now it starts to make sense why he started there, doesn't it? That if we can encounter Jesus in our desperate spaces, if we can pursue him with the desperation of a soul that that needs nothing more than him, oh my goodness, everything can be different. Again, the problem is it stands in stark contrast to our own drive for self-sufficiency. Everything within us individually cries out to be able to fight on our own, cries out to be able to build on our own, cries out for me to be able to build my kingdom with my resources. But Jesus is saying, 
There's a new kind of kingdom that requires a new kind of thinking and a new kind of living. And so we, sometimes we don't know what to do with this. Out of our own strength, we will always strive for better. Out of self-sufficiency, we will always work for better. We will work and we will work and we will work and we will try and we will try and we will try. And we will dig deep and we will dig deep and we will dig deep. And it is exhausting. Desperation comes when we understand we can't make anything new. That only Jesus can do that. If you try hard enough, if you work really hard, you might be able to make your marriage better. But you will never, no matter how hard you try, make it new on your own. If you try hard enough and you put in enough hours and you invest your money the right way and you work and you work and you work, you can make your life better for a while. But you'll never experience the purpose and joy that come with being made new, with renewed focus, renewed purpose. You can work really, really hard to make your relationship with your spouse, your boyfriend or girlfriend, your siblings, your parents, your coworkers, your neighbors better. But there's no amount of time, effort, energy, or money that you can spend that will ever make them new. Only, only, only Jesus can make us new. And when we start to understand that, we start to experience a fresh kind of desperation. It's a fresh kind of desperation that says, Jesus, I am at the end of myself. And if you are all that I have, if you are all that I experience, you are my reward. If that is all I have, then that is enough. It is more than enough. And I will trust you to make me new and to be active in the spaces and places around me. I believe Jesus is calling us to a place of fresh rest today, where we have been working hard. We have been striving in our own ability, in our own strength, to try, to try, to try, to make things better. I think, I think there are those of us desperate today. So what do we do with that? So what? I think there are those of us in this place today who relate so profoundly with the crowd in Jesus' day. We've come into these spaces, we're watching online after a day where we, we have just limped through it. We wonder if we can make it through another day, another moment with that broken relationship, with wondering if, if I really have what it takes we wonder if we can make it through another conversation with that loved one. We wonder if I can show back up to work again. And we're desperate. We've done everything we know to do to make it better, and better just isn't good enough, and it's not lasting. And there's always more to do to achieve better. I think... There are those of us in these spaces desperate today to experience the healing and the wholeness and the newness that only Jesus can bring. So I want to challenge you to ask this question, one that the Holy Spirit himself, I believe, has been asking you throughout this day. 
and wants to answer with you. It's this. What have you been trying to make better that Jesus wants to make new? What space, what relationship, what, what part of your own physical investments have you been working hard to make better that Jesus wants to make new? Maybe for you, it's, it, he's highlighting your need to step into relationship with him for the first time. To really invite him to be the one who makes you new from the inside out as your forgiver and your leader. There's a tool in your note guide, a prayer that you can pray to help do that. If you do that, talk to one of us. We'd love to help you in that journey. But I believe there are places for each of us that are coming to mind where we know we need healing and wholeness. The shalom peace of God that brings everything into flourishing in our lives. There are later on in our gatherings, there are going to be places at each of our campus locations, Kiwani for you as well, where your campus hosts are going to give you direction on where you can go for prayer to have somebody lay hands on you, pray over you, pray with you, and ask God to do a new thing in your life, in your body, in your mind. That opportunity is coming. Maybe that's your response today. Where we can ask God not to make us better, but to make us new. I told you at the beginning of our, of our time that the picture my family had taken on Easter had a couple of stories that I wanted to share today. I told you the first one about uh, my amazing wife, Sarah. The second story has to do with, uh, with the woman on the far right of the picture standing right next to me. That's my mom, Laurel. Uh, my mom, Laurel, is one of the newest quad citizens. She moved here just a couple of weeks ago from Arizona, and I'm so excited about that. I don't know what she was thinking because, like, we are having an awesome winter this spring, and, uh, and that's when she came. But if you had asked me 15 years ago if my mom would uproot her life would, would leave other family members, including a couple of my siblings and, and her dad and some relatives in Arizona, that she would uproot her life and move to the Midwest to be part of this place, to be part of what God is doing in these cities, to be part of my family. She's moving in with us and, and hanging out with us. I would have told you that that was an impossibility. Not the least because we weren't even here yet and I didn't know what the Quad Cities was, but mostly because... We were not in a great space 15 years ago. We had been through a lot of journey. We had been through a lot of brokenness. We had both experienced uh, abuse at the hands of others. We had, we had really a, a, just a tough, tough journey. And there was a point in our lives where, where we didn't even really like each other very much, I would say. Where she was not my favorite person and I was not hers. And we would talk and, and it, was, it was okay but I, I want you to understand, there, there came a point where each of us decided we would stop trying to make the other person better, and we would stop asking God to make the other person better. And instead, we would ask him to make us new. And he did it. He did it in a way that only he gets credit for. And I'm sharing that with you. Not, not because I want to give false hope about, you know, just, just pray this prayer and everything gets better. No, don't, don't hear that. Remember, when you pray and you ask God to make you new, that is a prayer he answers. 
The outcome may be different than what you desire or design, but it is a prayer he will answer. And I'm so excited that my mom is here and that she, she, part of the reason she came, I can't wait to tell you more of this story, is that the Holy Spirit began stirring within her uh, a year or so ago that she needed to be part of what Heritage was doing just as a member of the congregation to connect with God and others and her purpose. And I can't wait to share more of how that came about. But I want you to understand this. There are spaces in your life where you're tired because you've been working so hard to make it better. And I believe the Holy Spirit is telling you today, he wants you to know what it is to be made new there, to experience something completely different. So I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to pray for us that he would do just that, okay? Pray with me, please. Jesus, thank you for the gift of who you are. Thank you for the gift of the season of resurrection where we know your word says that the same spirit who raised Christ Jesus from the dead abides in us. And so, Lord, in the season of resurrection, we ask you to lead us into spaces of resurrection where you would speak new life into places long dead. Like the crowd that gathered that day so many years ago, where there were elements and aspects of life that were too far gone and only a touch from God could bring it back. My brothers and sisters have spaces in their lives where they're aware we need a touch from you. God, show us where we've been working hard to make it better, but that you are calling us to experience something new. And then I pray as you identify that for us, that you would show us what it is to have strength and courage to pursue you in those places. Give us a soul desperation for you. God, if you are all we have, that is more than enough. May it be true. May it be so today. In Jesus' name, amen.